Hello, welcome to the March 2023 episode of the Distance Learning Roundtable on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show that brings together educators to discuss the future of online education. It's an honor to introduce you to the show's hosts, Pat Casella, the Executive Director of the U.S. Distance Learning Association, and Dean Hoke, Managing Partner of the international consulting firm, Edu Alliance. We know you are going to learn a ton from today's guests. Kate and Joe are the authors of the best-selling book, Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Ed. So take it away, Pat and Dean. Well, thank you, Hope. Kate Colbert is a former higher education insider. You were an insider. You're still an insider. I know you. <laughs> and a current world-renowned marketing expert. She develops college and university brand stories that are meaningful to the prospective student. She has overseen brand and enrollment marketing, public relations, and alumni relations at two Chicago area graduate schools. Kate has additional expertise in corporate education, university crisis management, and faculty relations. She serves as a faculty member in a number of higher education institutions in the Chicago area. Pat? Thanks. Thanks, everybody. I would like to introduce Dr. Joe Salustio. He's one of our nation's foremost higher education experts. He's led a broad range of educational institutions in various sectors of higher education, currently serves as the Senior Vice President of Lindenwood Global at Lindenwood University. Joe is a Senior Consultant to the Association of Governing Boards of Universities and Colleges, and also a frequent speaker and moderator at higher education conferences. He's also the co-founder and host of America's leading higher education podcast, The Ed Up Experience. Uh, welcome, Kate and Joe. Delighted to have you with us today. And uh, we're going to alternate some questions, and I'm going to turn it over to Dean for our first question. Very good. Well, Kate and Joe, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Kate, I'm going to kind of start with you, and then I'm going to ask Joe to also pitch in on this answer. Let's start with the book. Let's start with the book Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education. Been reading the book, haven't gotten through it all yet, but it's fascinating. I mean, you're, the interviews seem to be with well over 100 different university right. presidents and senior people across the country. I'm very curious about the motivation in writing the book. And Kate, why don't we start with you and then Joe, I'd like you to take over from there. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I will let Joe jump in um, uh, after I say a few words, because boy, he's the guy who's talked to anybody who's anybody in higher education. But you know, what was the motivation behind writing the book? You know, yeah. I think if we had to sum it up, I would say what drove us to write a really honest, inspired, kind of no holds barred kind of book about the future of higher education was love and sadness. And I say that because Joe and I both really love higher education, right? So we, you know, we've consumed it. Um, there's a lot of degrees between the two of us. Um, we have supported it as alumni and community members and donors, and we've created it working inside and on behalf of higher education as higher education leaders. But but we also have a lot of skepticism, and we wanted to have a really honest conversation about things that are sort of the sad part about higher education. What could be better? Um, and so we decided that we wanted to talk about it all, about what's working well and what's not working well, what opportunities there are ahead, but what are the stumbling blocks that we see? And so ultimately, you know, 
Commencement tries really hard and I think succeeds in telling the full story of higher education now and where it's headed. Um, and it was our hope that this book, and I think we nailed it, um, is both a love letter to higher education and also a devil's advocate. And Joe, why don't you talk a little bit about it, a little bit about the motivation, but I'm also curious about the style that you, you took in terms of the approach, in terms of the, um, the interviews. Yeah. So um, first of all, I have to give a shout out to my EdUp co-founder. His name is Elvin Freitas. And he, very, very early on when we were doing the podcast, uh, the EdUp experience, he said, hey, you know what? We should ask every person that we interview what the future of higher education looks like. And then we could take that someday and we should write a book. And we thought that was just a cool, it started out as a cool idea. And then um, after that cool idea really started taking shape and, and you get to interview a hundred presidents and you go, how could we not write this book? You know, what's the likelihood? We we started asking ourselves these rhetorical questions. What's the likelihood that Pat Casella goes and listens to the hundred interviews? Probably not that high, unless you've started out at the beginning. Sometimes with podcasts, you can feel behind, you know, they're time consuming, you know, we get busy, but we were putting out so many, it would have been hard for somebody to go back and listen to them. I'll ask Kate because she had to do that for the book. But <laughs> we said, well, if we take those themes and we put them into a book and we can we can extract those themes, then it won't matter what happens in the future with the podcast. You're jumping in at whatever point. You're already caught up when you read that book. You could jump in on episode 300 or 500 or 9,000, but you have this foundation for where everything started. Um, and so that's that's where it came from. And then we felt like we had to give back. We had all this knowledge, all these uh, presidents just giving us all of this incredible feedback. And it was like, how do we how do we give back? That's what the EdUp experience, what commencement's all about, how we give back to the community. And in terms of the style, you know, higher ed for better or for worse there are parts of it that are still um formal and traditional and sometimes elitist and yeah. the podcast we the, the, and i go back to the ed up experience where all these interviews happened it was we would get these presidents on and they would come and they would be really formal at first and we said you know what i i don't even prepare for those po I, haven't, I haven't prepared for a podcast that i've done since like episode 10 and i said i'm going to be organic i'm just going to ask whatever comes to my mind and i'm going to try to put these people at ease and as soon as the presidents went at ease they started really talking like they were normal people you're having a cup of coffee with instead of the polished person who's in front of a camera or a radio and we really start extracting great information and so we need to write the book like we're sitting down and having a coffee conversation about higher education, not like a textbook. And we wrote it in that style. And Kate and I had a conversation really early on. This needs to be practical. It needs to be a read for every single person in, in higher education, no matter who they are. Fascinating. Pat? No, thank you. That's a good first start right there. Uh, my second question gets into the pandemic. So we know the pandemic was really a game changer in the field of education. Many institutions had some experience with online learning, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years, some of the, some of the older ones, primarily through, I'd say, a blended model. However, many turned to that complete online model during the crisis, right? Uh, in your opinion, what's the difference between a truly online program and one that, you know, had been implemented as an emergency use only, like, right, only pulled the lever in case the building's burning down. And Joe, I'm going to start with you on that one. And then I'd like to hear Kate's comments as well. Yeah, that's that's uh, such an important question. Um, several folks have said 
that during the pandemic online learning for those that weren't doing it was emergency response online learning. It was, it was a response to the emergency, not a, not an organically created uh, modality. Um, throughout the interviews that we did with the presidents, um, there were some that were engineered for online learning. And I think about Scott Pulsifer, who literally said that from Western Governors University, we were engineered for this. We were, we were ready for this. And then I, it goes all the way across that spectrum um, where I remember interviewing Sean Decatur from Kenyon College, and he says, we did online learning when we had to, but that is not our value proposition. Our value proposition is brick and mortar residential education, and that's where we're going to put our resources as soon as we get to the new normal. We had to realize a spectrum. But I think when foundationally, when you get down to it, what's the difference? If I take a program that exists for brick and mortar, and I try to, to put it into an online Canvas or another LMS and have the exact same learning outcomes and the exact same assignments and the exact same communal factors, it's not going to work because it wasn't designed for that. But if I'm designing a program for online or, and I would say even hybrid programs to some, some degree where the assignments, the learning communities are built for those who are not ever maybe going to be on a campus. And so you're talking more for an adult student. Uh, there's a faster pace um, it's on demand. And so you get to choose is it synchronous online or asynchronous online. So there's choices, choose your own adventure moments that you get to make, but that you design it particularly for the person who may never come to a campus. I think that's a foundational difference is I can't take what exists brick and mortar and stick it online. I have to design it for the online audience. Valid, valid. Kate, what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And first of all, I would say also too, that, you know, a lot of high school students and undergraduate students who experienced quote unquote online learning for the very first time when it was being done poorly by the institutions they were already connected to who weren't doing something that was truly pedagogically designed to be online um, now have um, a totally unfair assessment of what online learning is. And I think as an industry in post-secondary education and beyond, we need to be helping sort of reaffirm faith in how powerful and engaging online learning um, can be and typically is for those of those students around us who sort of got the sort of short straw on that. Um, I would just say one other thing. I mean, for me, one of the most shocking and really sad moments um, during the research phase um, of writing commencement was when one of our anonymous survey respondents sent in a comment to us that said, that he was an IT professional and he had been providing, um, he was responsible for tech support for online students at their um, um, institution. And that in 2021, they eliminated his position um, because they told him that distance learning was quote unquote, no longer needed. No wow. kidding. Yeah. That's a shocker, a little bit of short-sighted view. Wow. It's all over the board. That, that's yeah. it, right? There's the adoption rates, the commitment. You know, you think about now, what does commitment to online learning look like? And there are various levels of, of commitment. And the so, great news too is, you know, one of the sort of silver linings, I'm sure you're all seeing this and in the online space is that a lot of teachers, a lot of professors, a lot of teachers who didn't have experience learning in online or had a little bit, um, really stepped up their game and many of them got really excited about what was possible in online and created all kinds of engaging new experiences and learned how to use different types of tools. And so when some of them were sort of forced to go back to a campus-based environment, um, the way they delivered 
learning in a brick and mortar classroom was actually secondary um, to how well they were doing it online. So in many ways, and we actually had a couple of presidents bring that up during the research, is that now we have to figure out how to level up our in-classroom teaching to be as good as what we've created online. And that's what's kind of exciting, I think. That's a great observation. Yeah, Dean, I'm going to turn to you for question three. Well, I'm going to keep going down this path a little bit. You brought up Kenyon, you brought up Western governors who had two very different views of the world. But to keep down that path a little bit, the marketing of online, I think at least on my old guy perspective is that I think in the beginning, that's many of us tried to market it the same. In other words, an online experience versus the face-to-face -face experience. And I think that was probably true, particularly in the early 2000s and the early parts of the decade. But I doubt if it's that way anymore. And I'd like to hear your positions as marketing experts. And Kate, I'll start with you about how you market online degrees, online education programs as a university to their potential uh, consumers. Let's start with you. Yeah, and Joe is in the thick of this, so he'll have a lot to add as well. But, you know, I think you have to think about when you're selling an online learning experience, what kind of photography and marketing works for that? And it's not what works for selling an on-campus experience, right? So we joke around about higher ed photography as always three in a tree, right? Three students typically, you know, with different color complexions, um, hopefully one of them sort of ambiguously ethnic, like is she... Persian, I can't tell, right? And under a beautiful tree with some ivy covered everything behind them and lots of brick, right? That doesn't work, right? Because what you're selling in online learning is you're selling the community, you're selling the learning experience, the competencies they're going to develop, the relationships with the professors. That's what you're selling. You're not selling come to our pretty campus. And so everything from the language to the photography to the videos, you have to be thinking about that. If I'm not selling an in real life program, but it's all online, what does the virtual tour look like? And it better be really good because if your learning platform is really engaging, the tour needs to show that. And how does a tour show them what the learning engagement looks like? So can we give prospective students a sneak peek of what their actual classes are going to look like, how they'll be interacting with their classmates, how teamwork will work online? How do we do that? Because what, you know, what works for students 18-year-olds who are coming to a campus for a coming-of-age experience is not what's going to work when you're trying to attract a 30-year-old working parent or a 55-year-old um, professional who wants to go back for an MBA or whatever the case may be um, into that experience. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks out there. My husband is actually one of them who finished his bachelor's degree fully online from a university that, by the way, is 30 minutes from our house. And the first time we ever set foot on their campus is when we went to go pick up his cap and gown. Joe, let's kind of keep going down this path. In particular, I like Kate's line about the three shot. You're right. That, that, that ambiguous shot has been used for a long time. You're right about that. But how do you visually uh, yourself, how do you visually present online, particularly in terms of presenting it in advertising, marketing to the potential students? What are you trying to say? Well, the, the first place I presented is on Google, to be quite honest, uh, because I think I've got you've got to be present, right? And with an online student, um, a different than a traditional student, you know, the high schools around your area and when this group of students is going to turn 18 and who your market is. And the online student, it could be 
years and years. You will never know it until the moment that person decides that they're thinking about going back to school or going to school in the first place. And so you have to be present. So that's how I would say. And I think that if you can create presence, then the question is, are you differentiated enough to capture that student? And part of differentiation for me and what I present um, and, and aim to present is a, a little bit of a speed differentiation, right? You think about if you think about online education to to retail, you know, when you used to go buy something and you'd go down to your mall and you'd have J.C. and Sears and Macy's and and so on, and you compare prices for these stores, and some are more bargain, some are not, and there might be a Ross down the road that did the same thing. And now you don't need to do any of that. You can just buy it from online. Uh, Amazon or wherever, and you don't need to go to the store. And online education is that way, where in Southern New Hampshire was brilliant at this, right? Southern New Hampshire University, when they had the commercials about the bus, where they were bringing you your degree in the middle of nowhere, no matter where you are, and you never had to even think about going anywhere. And here, here we're going to find you where you are. That was the message. And I think that still is the message, but there is a speed component. I can't wait for you to shop and decide. I need to get to you first so I can talk to you about my value proposition. If I wait, you're gone. And so for me, it's speed, it's service, right? Because if I believe, if you believe that a student is a consumer who's making a conscious choice about where they go to school and they're picking a, a experience or product or whatever label you want to pay, put on it, if you believe that to be true, do you want to be the third company that presents to that customer or the first one? Mm. If you want to be the first one, then then you have to fashion your operations and you have to fashion your marketing around being student-centric, customer-focused. Um, I think the whole picture of the student with a computer with a child on their leg still does work a little, but that's kind of been done now. I think it's more about how, how I experience. And can I exp can I get my grade on my phone as I'm walking to, uh, to pick up my kids from school? Can I, how do I access this online learning ecosystem? Not just that, I'm a frustrated parent at home at nine o'clock at night trying to put my kids to sleep. I think that has been done. Now it's how do I use AI to make my life easier? How do I, how, how, how? I think that's really the big part of how the value proposition is going from, you know, um, um, access through a computer to now how I can hack my way towards a higher education, uh, post-secondary education degree. And and hack, I don't mean make it easier. I mean, make it faster um, yeah, maybe somewhat easier, not the, not the uh, actual learning outcomes, but how, how I can get there faster, um, and competency-based education, non-standard term models are all ways that you can do that with online ed. So immediacy is, is becoming a big yeah. part of that, of that message. Isn't it for you? Isn't it for you? I watched yeah. a part of, I, I said this on one of my podcasts last the other night, I watched like 15 minutes of a movie and I was like, eh, it's all right. Let me go to a different movie. Uh, that's all right. Let me go to a different movie until I was like, yeah, I don't want to watch a movie. I'm going to play a game on my phone, like 15 minute, 20 minute attention spans. Um, and we're all examples of that. We ask Alexa when we're not sure, or we, you mm -hmm. know, flip open our phone. Indeed. Yeah. Joe, we interviewed somebody. Ahead, Do you remember that? Was that, I think it was, um, uh, Dr. Bill Papacello, former, uh, president of, uh, university of Phoenix. And, and we talked about that exact thing that, that Joe's talking about the idea of like, if this is not working for me, I'm just going to skate. And he talked about that, that in face-to-face -face, um, 
campus-based education, it's kind of, we make it kind of hard for students to leave, um, you know, that they've got to say goodbye to their teachers, they've got to pack up their stuff and move out of their dorm and all these things, right? Um, so they stay often when they're not happy. Um, but he had talked about, he's like in online education, he's like, they can, he's like, they can quit you know, in the click of a button, and he, I loved his, his phrase, he had said something about, he's like, you know, he's like, they will leave you, and they will do it with impunity, um, and it's just so true, and so, you know, Joe's not going to pat himself on the back here, or anyone who's, who's doing this work, but I, I sort of left inside higher ed to become a consultant back when it was easy. I think it was easier to attract students to campus-based education, um, but the work that folks like Joe and others are doing right now, it is hard hard. I mean, it's not just hard because there's so many channels and so many different ways to have to reach them with the marketing. It's hard because online education can serve so many different sectors of people that there's all these different segments of the market. And some of them, by the way, um, aren't even seeing or noticing the advertising or marketing at first because some of them are not yet thinking that higher education is available to them or that the solution to the problem they're having in their career or their life might be solved through some sort of post-secondary education experience. And so, so folks like Joe not only have to talk to the folks who are ready to be talked to, but they have to figure out how to like be there, as he said, sort of be discoverable on digital, but then be like, knock, knock, knock. Like, have you thought about going back to school for that? Right. And that's really hard. And by the way, it's really expensive. I have one client who they have 600 or so graduate um, programs at their university, and they spend about a million and a half dollars just in search marketing, just for graduate programs every year. Wow. See, I actually think that's not a lot of money. If you said per month, I was going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. But so the whole game has changed. The entire game has changed. So even having that conversation, right, when you're the head of, you know, enrollment, your VP of enrollment, or you're the CMO, that conversation with the president and with the board about what the budget needs to look like to attract and then to retain um, these students is it's just a whole new ball of wax. Patrick. All right, let's continue along this this uh, line of thought here. Joe, uh, Senior Vice President at Lindenwood Global at Lindenwood University. What are some of the challenges associated with starting an online program at a nearly 200-year-old university? I would imagine they are a little bit different than somebody that's just starting up a brand new university to go and deliver online learning. Sometimes that I'd say it's like a store a dream almost some days. Um, but here, here's what I would say. Um, there are with anything, there are varying levels of adoption, adoption to the concept, uh, adoption of the operations, adoption of what that will do for me and my job as somebody who's worked at this institution before. And now you're introducing something new that's going to affect me and my students. And what does that mean for me? So when you get down to brass tacks and you want to talk about what change looks like, it's the individual. It's the person that says, there's this big initiative called Lima Global. What does that mean for me and my job? And everything in between of what is this going to do for the students and the process and the, you know, the classroom and resources, it all is smoke and mirror. And it really comes down to what does this mean for me and my job? And if you think about that, there are universities that have said, we're not going to build this internally because of those issues culturally that can be created. We're going to go buy a for-profit or, or acquire another nonprofit that's good with online learning. And there are many examples out there that, that I know you guys know of. And we're going to run 
separately as a bolt-on because it's easier. It's easier. We, they're just going to work on over here on online learning, and we're going to do all our traditional stuff here. A lot harder to build it internally because you have to go through all the current structure, right? So if you introduce new curriculum, you've got to go through the three committees of, of curriculum that are built for the traditional model. If you want to look at admissions requirements for this is a great one. If you look at um, Linwood University, most of the admissions requirements are geared toward a traditional student. Even though we have adult students in online programs, it's really a traditional student on, uh, um, admissions requirement. And you go, if I'm serving a 45-year-old adult student who's going online, how much weight does a GPA really have? Let's say it was below a 3.0, but that person has 15 years of vice presidential experience at a bank and they want to come into, my, uh, into you know, get a master's in, in accounting. For me, that GPA means nothing. But to your admissions requirements built at that point, it still needs something to someone that's measuring somebody on those. So how do you break down those structures? Um, what I can say about Lindenwood University, however, is that, yes, we had some adoption issues and it came down to what happens with cannibalization. If you run this program in a faster way for an adult student, how am I going to get any students in my program? And so what happens to my job? And And, and that's okay. We would expect everybody to feel that way. In the end, however, it's a, it's a communications tour. It's a learning period to say, we're going to help everybody grow. Rising tide, what is it? Rising tide uh, raises all boats. Boats, all boats. Yeah, yep. and, and I think that's true. And we've gotten through, because we have amazing faculty and staff here, we've gotten through the growing pains and we're into implementation phases now. Uh, but it wasn't easy. And I don't think anybody would tell you it was easy, but those are the problems that you would expect and we haven't even gotten to the point where we say, what about this policy? Does that work for Lindenwood Global? And the answer might be no, but there are going to be people that are tied to that policy. How do they let go of it? What does that mean if I let go of it? Does that reduce quality of education? And I, I do want to say one thing, that online education is not of lesser quality than on ground for anybody that believes that. I, I just, it is absolutely the same quality and speed and access um, can enhance quality, not reduce it. And did the book help? I mean, did your research for that book influence you creating that program? You know, it's, it's funny you ask that because I feel like the only place I haven't written a book is at Lindenwood University, right? <laughs> people know that I've written it, but, you know, I get people from other higher ed institutions going, wow, this book's amazing. And, and Lindenwood University, maybe because they see me all the time, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Wait, He's may, not famous at home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not famous at home. They're like, you know, this, this idiot. Yeah. I know who he is, you know, no. So, so, but, but truly, I think it, I think it helped, but nobody would admit it. But, you know, in the end, it helped me. It helped me with understanding delivery, understanding the different uh, options that were available to do something like this, who had gone through it. And there were some, and I reached out to them. You know, Dr. Bill Pepicello, as, as Kate brought up, he was a great resource for me from the University of Phoenix, having scaled something like this. And, what do I need to worry about? And he's been helpful. So there's just been a lot of great feedback. You take all those 125 presidents and you put them in your brain. There's just a lot to pick from. Yeah. Right. No, I would imagine that's, that's thanks for that. Dean, I'm going to turn it over to you for our next question. Okay. Let's, let's move down another segment of, of students. And I think one of the missing groups, the missing man sort of philosophy, and that has been the students that started universities, men and women, and because of life, um, dropped out, had to do different things. 
but their employers are pushing more and more and more about getting more and more of their own employees educated, getting degrees, getting credentials. An interview I did on another series, I heard directly from a president of a major state university saying to me that the governor and his cabinet basically said, you find a way to get 300,000 of my citizens graduated. And I want an answer to that question. And he was going, okay, you know, how much money are you willing to give me? You know, it was a bit of his argument back. But at the same time, it's a legitimate question. And I'm very curious if you have some thoughts about that in terms of how we can get those students, that 25 plus group that want to go back to school, but they haven't quite figured it out yet. What can you suggest to them and to employers and quite frankly, to state government who's showing more and more state interest in trying to find a way to do something about this? Gosh, there are so many ways. And, and you know, during the interviews for this book, we really lost track of how many times this came up, the 39 million people in the United States who have some college but no degree and and how we treat them, right? So I, I talk candidly in the book about the fact that I really hate the phrase drop out. Um, so it's, it's arbitrary to ask somebody to do something for four years straight. Um, and then if they do it for three and they love it and they're loyal to the institution and they've leveled themselves up in terms of their, sc- their skills and their careers, and we still don't consider them alumni. Um, so, so we talked about this a lot and we talked about new learner populations in the 2020s and beyond. We have a whole pop quiz um, in our chapter uh, in the book, uh, the chapters called Where Did All the Students Go? Because a lot of institutions are not realizing um, that, you know, that this is a huge opportunity that just because there aren't as many 19 year olds who want to come live onto your campus anymore because of the demographic cliff and, and whatnot, um, there are millions and millions of people. And, and, and by the way, the some college, no degree folks is just one segment that we talk about. And there's probably six or eight that we think are pretty significant. But to answer your question about how do we do that, so so higher education and industry and the employers have to do their part. And I do believe that public policy folks need to do their part as well. So the secret, I think, is in partnerships between institutions of higher learning and um, employers. And so, you know, back in the day, I'm one of those folks who you know, my mom and dad were the kind of people who came out of high school and they went and just got a job somewhere and you didn't have to have any skills at all. And they taught you everything on the job training. Right. And you were able to move from one opportunity to another and they just kept teaching it to you and they never made you feel bad for what you didn't know. And you re- developed a lot of loyalty and you stayed for 30 years. Right. And then I'm of the generation where that didn't exist. So we all had to go to college and um, and we had to just keep bouncing from job to job every five or 10 years to, to level up. But now we're getting back to institutions saying we don't want somebody just showing up with some random bachelor's degree and, you know, 20th century American literature or whatever. Um, and, and, and we don't know how to apply that. We'd love to teach them what they need to know to excel at our company and to serve our stakeholders. And so we're just seeing more and more um, institutions of higher learning and employers coming together and saying, how do we build a program or, you know, finesse a program that's perfect for our employees. I just saw uh, on social media the other day, uh, we talked about Western Governors University already, but they just announced a partnership with the KFC Foundation. So employees at KFC, you know, it's not just 
finger licking good. They can go to college now. Um, and they have an opportunity to do that 100% paid by their employer um, through Western Governors University. So that's really, we're seeing those kinds of things, but they really need to be working together, industry um, and higher education. One of my favorite um, conversations we had um, was with uh, Dr. John Renone, um, who's the president at um, Mountain Gateway Community College. And he said to us, he's like, really, for the last five years or so, he's like, my most of my job has been as an economic developer. And he told us, and I was really shocked to hear this, and I was so heartened to hear this. He said, listen, he says, the worst thing that could happen is that an organization, a company in my region, he says, decides to move their plant or their headquarters to another area because they can't meet their workforce development needs here. And he said, because if that happens, that's on us. Yeah. And that was the first time I've ever heard a college or university president say, it is my job to make sure that we are creating employable, competent workers for the industries that surround our campus. Um, and we started hearing more and more of that as we did more and more interviews. And, and so that's, I think, a really um, very, very, very exciting trend. And then how do we get folks who have some college and no degree to want to go back we have to make it make sense, right? So right. we can't try to bring them into a degree program that doesn't work in their life anymore. But if you're a registered nurse, so you have a two-year degree in nursing and a licensure, um, and someone offers you the opportunity to do a BSN completion program, um, which will let you do more at work, will help you make more money if you get the bachelor's level nursing, and by the way, most of those programs are being offered online. Um, and so those are the kinds of programs that we need to be doing more and more of in the United States and beyond, I think, to really offer those. But these degree programs that are for completion, I think it's great when I see institutions putting degree completers in cohorts um, so that you don't feel like if you're 38 and you've got some great job experience that you don't feel like you're putting always in a classroom with 19 year olds with backpacks, because maybe that makes you feel like you don't fit. What does it look like to say anybody who's transferring in X number of credits, 30 to 60 credits, or has an associate's degree and wants to complete this program, we plug you into the track where you are, and you're going to be in classes with students just like you who have interesting stories just like you. And so I think that cohort models work really, really well. Um, and then And then there's the challenge of keeping them and, I, and I'm convinced that retention is um, is sometimes the harder harder part of the battle um, because life life happens. And so Joe mm -hmm. talked about policies. Um, how do we make sure that for folks who are you know 25 plus um, that our policies work? That we have leave of absence policies so people can stop in and stop out of their education. And how do we make sure that we have programs? that fit their life in terms of when they're taking classes, how, where, um, and and it doesn't have to be. I'm, I'm a big fan of shorter term credentials, um, you know, industry credentials that come along with your educational credential. There's just so many ways to do this and to do this well. And so many institutions are already doing it well. So the good news is there's a lot of people leading the pack um, in, in this. And so and by the way, what can public, you asked Dean, what can sort of the public policy people or legislators do? Um, they can step up and help and make this more palatable for a lot of folks. So the the amount of money that a, a company can write off as tuition reimbursement that they pay for one of their employees, that level, $5,250 has not changed in over, it's been like 26 years or something. That IRS tax code needs to be changed. 
Uh, because if institutions um, can more affordably help their employees get an education, more of them will do it. Fascinating. Pat, I think we're running out of time. We've got one more question. Joe. Oh, yeah. We got you. Um, and I'm a product of that co-op program, by the way. I was went to school for a term, employer for a term, back and forth. There's a lot of benefits for it. And granted, that was 25, 30 years ago. But, you know, it, uh, it works. It truly yeah, does work. It works. Yeah, it does. Last question here. Uh, I opened up the commencement book, started going through it, looked at some of the quotes, uh, got through the preface, you know, and I see a statement in the beginning that, that rang um, about operating for the era in which a university was founded instead of the age for which we now exist would be a fatal mistake, right? Um, I'd note that even focusing on today is a challenge, right? Because it's a moving target. Um, especially when you look at the introduction of disruptive technologies like ChatGPT, right? So for both of you, I'll start with Joe. What does, and I love this question, I always ask it, what does online learning look like three to five years from now in higher education? You know, where the, will there be expansion, consolidation? Start with Joe on this one. Yeah, you know, um, a, a very quick, mergers and acquisitions were that those two words and them together were not something five years ago we were really talk, talking about beyond an occasional uh, school closure or whatever. And now it's very, very common um, that schools are talking about M&A. Um, there's obviously a spectrum of that. Uh, so there is going to be some consolidation. Um, there, you're going to have schools that have traditional uh, student um, a foundation of traditional students looking to acquire possibly or merge with a school who is very, very good at online education because you can accelerate there faster than starting it fresh. Um, so I think you're going to see that, but it, you know, it's interesting. I had one of my employees come in today and talk to me. We, we talk about chat GPT and AI that's really been new, right? That has accelerated our need to review what teaching and learning looks like in online education. Oh, yeah. If my paper can be written by AI well, what if I have you actually handwrite? Schools are having hand papers, go back to handwriting papers, right? And then the conversation I have with my employee today was, well, students who are really smart are going to 3D printers and they're like uploading their paper to a 3D printer so in their writing style so it looks like that it's handwritten and you go, there's always a way around this. So we better, what it looks like five years from now to answer your question is significant, technology adoption and implementation of AI, of VR, and how we have to move away from, you have a paper due every week, to more engaged learning models for online students. Kate, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love that. I mean, we even talked to some schools that that said, like, we don't put you in a classroom um, to just get lectured at. Like, that's the part you do. So for hybrid programs, a lot of institutions that sort of solo reading and watching videos and that type of stuff and threaded discussions, that's what's happening online. And then if there's a classroom portion, that's where their competencies are being tested. That's where the, the professors know whether they know how to do stuff. It's not about who wrote this paper. And, and I think it's you know offensive for us to assume that students are going to cheat on papers and whatever, even though there are ways to do that. Um, but what does it look like to Joe's point for classroom experience, whether it's face-to-face -face or it's online, how does the time we spend synchronously together 
become really, really engaging where we can see who who has learned. We can see who's asking great questions um, and we can experience that. I think it's great. I, you know, our entire book is about the future of higher education. And we tried, um, we drop a lot of hints throughout the book about what Joe and I think the future of higher education looks like. Um, and then, you know, like, like all good, um, you know, uh, textbooks, you know, we hope ours will become um, for um, educational um degree programs, the answers are in the back, I joke. So Joe and I do in the epilogue really go deep into what we believe the future looks like. But to your question about what does the future of online education look like, I, you know, I agree with with Joe. I think there's going to be some really bold and creative partnerships. Um, we did research and we asked folks, um, you know, is your institution looking at a merger acquisition or, or major strategic uh, partnership? 45% of the institutions that we researched told us yes. Um, and that's to Joe's point, we would have never even, that would have been a sacrilege to even ask that question five years ago, um, much less get that kind of an answer. So, you know, I do think that we're going to see some consolidation as institutions are merging and creating these partnerships. Um, but I think most institutions are looking at what they offer or should be offering um, in online, and they're going to be creating massive expansions. We saw that recently with Unity College, and we interviewed Dr. Um, Malik Peter Khoury at Unity College. They had 750 or so students before they decided to start offering online. They're very remote um, in, in location in Maine and said there are more people we can serve. We can't expect everyone to come to us. And in a matter of a couple of years, they went from 700 and some students to over 4,000. Um, and so on, expansion of online is not just about serving the students better. It's about serving more students and serving students who otherwise wouldn't be served. Um, and it's about access. It's about, you know, it's about it being possible for folks to be able to get an education, you know, on their own terms, the programs they want, no matter where they live. And so I think that distance learning is going to continue to be a, a key and exciting component of the future of higher education. Thanks for that, Kate. Boy, I mean, we can probably keep talking here for another couple of hours, I would imagine. There's such so many great topics here. Hope, I'm going to turn it over to you for conclusion. Thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. The new era of online education. Very exciting. Thank you, Kate, Joe, Deed, and Pat. This was indeed fantastic information for our audience. And we look forward to having more conversations with our USDLA community. In fact, you two are going to be at our national conference in July in Orlando. So that is really exciting to keep this conversation going. So folks, this is our March episode of the Distance Learning Roundtable on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Again, I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show, and it's my privilege to be here with you all. Thank you all. We'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.